Welcome back to our study of First Kings. We are looking at the second half of First Kings chapter 20 today. That's First Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse 26, all the way down to verse 43. Now, last time we saw the showdown between Ben-Hadad and Ahab, Ahab being the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Ben-Hadad being the king of Syria. And this time we're going to see round two of that showdown. You might recall that we were told at the end of the last section we looked at, at the end of the first half of chapter 20, that Ben-Hadab would come after Israel again in the spring and that Ahab needed to be ready. And so what we find now, picking up the story in verse 26, is that it's the springtime. And sure enough, here comes Ben-Hadad against Israel again. So back in uh, verse 22, it was a prophet who had told this to Ahab. It says, Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And so that's where we pick it up in verse 26. In the spring, it says, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Now let's pause there. All right, so what is happening here is exactly what the prophet told Ahab would happen, that Ben-Hadad would come up against him again in the spring, and he needed to be ready. And something similar happens here to what happened before in the first showdown between Ahab and Ben-Hadad. <clears throat> and that is that Ahab wins, so to speak, um, and that God makes himself known to Ahab through this victory. Of course, it's not Ahab himself who's responsible for the victory. It's the Lord, right? But... Um, Israel is going to be victorious over Syria despite incredible uh, odds or, or being incredibly outnumbered. And God says to Ahab through a prophet in verse 28, it says, A man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said. Now this is something else that we saw at the end of the first half of chapter 20. Because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Do you remember back in verse 23, it says, The servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods, talking about the Israelites, their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain 
and surely we shall be stronger than they. So the Syrians had explained their defeat by saying, well, the reason we lost to Israel is because Israel's gods must be gods of the hills, and our gods uh, are not. Our gods are gods of the valleys. So if we fought them in the valley next time instead of in the hills, then we would win. So if Syria won this time in this second round of battles, what they would think is that their God or gods are stronger than the God of Israel if they fight in the right place because the gods of Israel, they're strong in their place and our gods are strong in our place or, or in, in the, this certain area, right? In a valley instead of in a hill. And God is, the God of Israel, right, is not one God among many, like the Syrians think, and most of the people in the world at that time would have thought. Every, every nation's got their gods. You know, every God has his sphere or whatever. Um, and the God of Israel says of himself, I am God and there is no other. There is no other God besides me. Right? He not only tells Israel that they should worship only one God, but he tells us in the Old Testament he is the only God, the one true and living God. And so God, when, he, uh, when, when the Syrians say, hey, it's just a matter of you know, where we fight based on which nation's gods are stronger, God says, no, 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 that's not how it works. And so that's why in verse 28, this man of God says, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, so this is the reason, right? because therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. So because they think I'm a God like the other gods and that their gods will be stronger than me as long as they fight in the right place, that's why I am going to give them into your hand. In other words, you are going to be victorious, Ahab, over Syria. And it's because of what God is going to do, right? It's not because of numbers. It's not because of military strategy. Notice it said before in verse 27 that the people of Israel encamp before the army of Syria like two little flocks of goats. It's not very big, not very significant, not intimidating. But it says the Syrians filled the country. So you have a massive army. We're, based on what we're told later, well over 100,000 people. Massive army of the Syrians. Two little flocks of Israelites. And God says, you know what? Because of what they said, because they think that this is just a battle between two nations who have two sets of gods that are powerful and different areas, and that's why they lost the first time. They fought in the wrong area where the gods of Israel were stronger than the gods of Syria. Because they said that, I'm going to give them into your hand. Despite the fact that they're so much more numerous than you, I am going to deliver them over to you so that you will know that I am God. And this is what's similar to last time, right? That uh, it was the same thing. He said uh, back in verse 13, I will give it into your hand this day 
talking about the great multitude of the Syrians, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So here again is God saying to Ahab, I'm going to show you that I am Yahweh, that I am the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to do that this time by handing Syria over to you once again, even though they greatly, greatly outnumber you. All right, so that's what God says he's going to do, and that's what happens. At the end of verse 29, it says, The people of, of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. This is a massive battle, is a massive defeat, a massive amount of casualties. 100,000 people struck down. And verse 30 says, The rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Again, this is not um, Israel's military tactics that are primarily responsible for this. This is not, um, you know, this is not um, some, uh, you know, strategy thing. It's not a numbers thing. In fact, it's it's the opposite on the numbers, right? This is the Lord. This is the Lord doing this, and because we know, right? If you believe that there really is a God. Right? and that he's the God of the Bible, he's the God of Israel, nothing about this is impossible. Nothing about this is far-fetched. We don't know the numbers of Israel, but let's say it was, let's say it was 20,000. Say it was 20,000. So Israel has 20,000 soldiers. Syria has a minimum 127,000, probably more. Right? Is it possible that Israel could strike down 100,000 men of the Syrians, and then a wall would fall and crush another 27,000? Absolutely. If you're serving the God who created the heavens and the earth, right, the God who would later send his son and raise him from the dead, right? somebody has said, um, I think it was uh, James Montgomery Boyce maybe, but anyway, somebody said um, that if you believe Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth, nothing else in the Bible is impossible to believe. Right? Not even the resurrection of Jesus. Right? None of that, as, as, as amazing as that is, right? as unusual as that is, as singular as that is, it's not hard to believe that God would raise his son from the dead if you believe that there's a God who created everything. Right? So it's not hard to believe that God could deliver this mighty army, massive army, into the hands of Israel. Nothing hard about that at all. All right, now, continuing, in the middle of verse 30, it says, Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city, and his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. So Ben-Hadad, 
who was so boastful and proud earlier in chapter 20, right? Do you remember that earlier in chapter 20 when he said, you know, deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children, right? He said that before and then he um, adds to that, right? He says, nevertheless, I will send my servants to you about this time, uh, tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away, right? Ben-Hadad was so arrogant and boastful earlier, but now Ben-Hadad has been humbled after two defeats, and he is pleading for mercy, asking for his life to be spared, rather than him being killed, right? Which is what he apparently expected to happen if Ahab had found him, right? And so uh, Ben-Hadad asks for mercy and Ahab gives it, right? Ahab says, oh, the king's still alive. Well, he's my brother and uh, bring him to me. And he brings him up in the chariot and Ben-Hadad says, tell you what, all those cities my father took from your father, you can have those back. You can do business in Damascus just like my father did business in Samaria. That's probably what the bazaars are about, right? And Ahab says, sounds great. Strike a deal, make a covenant. And, uh, you know, we may think, why did he do that? You know, why did he show mercy to Ben and Dad? Or you might think, that's great, he was merciful. But we find out in the next passage that this was not what Ahab was supposed to do. This is not how Ahab was supposed to respond. In fact, um, in a couple of things that I looked at um, about this passage, just briefly, I think both of them uh, mentioned or referenced somehow uh, the story of King Saul, right, where uh, King Saul does not, and it's because of what's about to happen, King Saul does not devote to destruction the things uh, that God had told him to devote to destruction, but he um, he saves some of them back. I can't remember if in this instance it's, it's animals or if it's the king or if it's both, but it's in um, 1 Samuel 15, I believe. And uh, Ahab is doing something similar to what King Saul did, right? Here's what it says, verse 35. It says, And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Now, that in itself is an interesting story, um, a strange story, it seems like to us, but it may also feel like a bit of a familiar story because something like this has happened before earlier in 1 Kings. Back in chapter 13, remember there was a prophet sent with a message and God told him, you deliver the message and you don't stick around. And he was asked to stick around and he said, no, I can't. And so he left town and then another prophet said, hey, you should come to my house. And the prophet did. Uh, the first prophet did, the prophet who was told not to stick around, comes to this prophet's house, and then um, the prophet who invited him over basically says, uh, you're in trouble now, right? Obviously paraphrasing there. And when the man leaves, what happens? He gets struck down by a lion. 
because he didn't do what God told him to do. Same thing happens here, right? That this prophet says, by the Lord, right, strike me. So this is a command from God. You're supposed to strike me. And the man refuses, and he says, okay, you didn't do what God says? Judgment for you. A lion is going to strike you down. And that's exactly what happens. Now, part of why this part, this part of the story is here, I think, is to remind us how serious it is when we don't do what God tells us to do. When we ignore, reject, disobey God's word, it's serious. Right? Okay, so here's what happens next. Verse 37, Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now, one of the things that's not clear here, and from something I was looking at earlier, apparently I'm not the only one it's not clear to, is why he needed to be struck if he was going to cover his eyes with a bandage anyway. Not 100% sure of why, why it had to happen this way. But anyway, this is what he does. And then verse 39 says, And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. All right, so what's happening here is very similar to what happened when the prophet Nathan confronted David. You might remember that Nathan came to David and told him a parable about a rich man who had a neighbor who just had one little lamb and the rich man had company and so he asked for the uh, the man the poorer man who just had the one lamb asked for his lamb so that he should he could kill it to feed his guest who had come and uh, David responds with outrage more or less right says that um, that was terrible and so on and, and pronounces judgment against that guy and then Nathan says you're the man right because Nathan because David had stolen the wife of Uriah, though David had so much, right? And so here, similarly, this prophet is presenting himself as a living parable, right? And again, though we don't know why it had to work this way with him being struck and wounded and, and covered in the bandage, it's true there's a reason, right? Um, but he's disguised himself so the king won't recognize him. And he tells him, you know, I was in the battle and somebody delivered this man to me and said, you've got to watch him and it's your life or his life. And well, I got busy and the guy disappeared. And the king says, well, you've already said it, right? The judgment you deserve um, is either your life or the talent of silver, just like you said when you described what the, what the deal was, what the responsibility was and what the cost was if you failed in your duty. And so the king, um, Here's that parable, responds that way. And then verse 41, it says, Then he, the prophet, hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. So, there you go. Um, verse 42, again, what about, you know, obviously he recognized him without the bandage. That would explain the bandage. But 
why he was struck, what that had to do with it, maybe to make it look like he'd been in a battle, is my best guess. But anyway, verse 42. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Now, we were not told, as far as I can tell or remember, uh, we were not told that Benadad was supposed to be devoted to destruction. We don't know for sure if Ahab had been told that explicitly or if he just should have known, right? But God says to him, look, I delivered Benadad into your hand. I had devoted him to destruction, but you let him go. And so, just like the man in the parable that the prophet just told, right? You are going to pay with your life for letting Ben-Hadad get away with his life. Right? So, um, what we see in this second half of, of, uh, of chapter 20, right, is a couple of things. One is that God is um, jealous for his own glory, as the Bible says, right? He does not share his glory with another, and he wants people to know who he is. He wants people to know that he's the real God. He doesn't want people to think that he's just one God among many, just, you know, one of the many national gods, you know, this, this nation has this God, this nation has this God. He wants people to know that he's the true and living God. He makes that clear in the Exodus, right? And he makes that clear here. He made that clear on Mount Carmel in the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He wants people to know that he's the one and only God. And one of the ways he does that is by um, dramatic, unexpected victories, right? You got a ton of prophets of Baal, lots of time to call on their God, no answer. Elijah, one prophet, his altar doused over and over with water, God answers, right? Israel, nation of slaves, well, not really even a nation at that point, um, a large family of slaves captive in Egypt, what does God do? He brings his people out as a conquering people without them having to so much as raise a sword against Pharaoh. Right, here, they're massively outnumbered, just like um, in the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. They're massively outnumbered, but God gives them the victory. God delivers the greater army into the hand of the army of his people so, so that people will know that he is God, that he is the Lord. And also, right, we see here um, how seriously God takes um, doing what he tells us to do, right? How serious it is if we don't do what God says. Now, again, we don't, we're not told explicitly, as far as I can tell, that Ahab was told uh, that Benadad was devoted to destruction, but based on the context and how God responds, it seems like a fair assumption that at some point God had made this clear to Ahab or, um, as I think somebody said, it should have been clear to Ahab, right? And so I think that's part of why you see the story of the man who gets uh, struck down by the lion for refusing to do what God said through his prophet, because that foreshadows what's going to happen to Ahab who doesn't who didn't do uh, what 
he was supposed to do, namely destroy Benadad, but instead um, showed him mercy. So these chapters, right? This, uh, these chapters, as with all, the Bible as a whole, really, but we lose sight of this sometimes in the specifics. These chapters are not ultimately about Ahab. As wicked as he is, right? As bad of a king as he is for Israel, these chapters are not ultimately about Ahab. They're not ultimately about Benadad. As arrogant as he was, right? As much as he needed to be humbled, as um, wrong-headed the Syrians were about their gods and the gods of Israel, the God of Israel, uh, that was that's not the point of these chapters. The point of these chapters is to show us who God is, right? And again, I'm, that's you know. Um, that's pretty obvious, right? But I was reminded by that uh, of that by something I read today, right? This is ultimately about who God is, right? Um, if I think anyway, anyway, um, forget what I read and what's just um, you know whatever. But uh, anyway, so that, that's what these chapters are about. It's about reminding us who our God is and what He's like and what He expects of us, and uh, that's the main reason why. We go to the Bible, right? We go there for other reasons too. We want to be comforted, encouraged, assured, um, etc. But the main reason we go is because we want to have fellowship with God. We want to know God. We want to be in communion with God. We want to uh, we want to worship God, right? And in order to uh, do all those things, we need to uh, we need God's grace, obviously, and we need to know who He is. And so these chapters, like the rest of the Bible, should make us grateful that God has made himself known to us through his word. Amen.